You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I remember the good old battle days when I was in high school, and I joined my high school's first ever women's hockey team. We were a ramshackle bunch, most if not all of whom had never played on a hockey team in our lives. I, in my figure skates, wobbling around with a hockey stick and trying to figure out how to balance with it as one pitiful example. It'll come as no surprise that in our first ever match against a team of some seriously committed young women, that my team was roundly defeated, 14 to 0. There was no recovery after this. Some rousing story of how we were motivated by our loss and practiced with enthusiasm every night for months and came back to win against the other team. No. I just went back to playing the left-back defender on my very Italian high school soccer team, which I infinitely preferred. Even so, my co-producer and I decided at the start of this season that we wanted to cover hockey and its references in literature, inspired by the newly released The Hockey Jersey, a children's book by Jail Richardson written in collaboration with the Toronto-based hockey player Eva Prone and illustrations by Chelsea Charles. I had the chance to speak to Richardson for today's episode. She's the author of The Stone Thrower, A Daughter's Lesson, A Father's Life. Her debut novel, Gutter Child, was an instant bestseller and a finalist for the 2021 Amazon First Novel Award, and her most recent children's book, Because You Are, was released in August 2022. In spite of my decision to take on this book, Neither my co-producer, Marco Timpano, nor I are avid hockey fans. I mean, yes, we will attend games here in Montreal on occasion or in Toronto, but neither of us is a regular fan. Still, the more I delved into this topic, the more I realized there was so much to learn about its importance to the Canadian national imaginary and about its connection to Indigenous populations. And then, pardon the pun, it began to snowball into a much larger episode. So, my dear listeners, I've laced up my skates and I've taped up my hockey stick, metaphorically speaking, to take you through this journey about hockey and literature. As I say, I began my journey by reading The Hockey Jersey by J.L. Richardson and Eva Perone. It's an endeavor that was commissioned and supported by Scotia Bank. In this story, the jersey doesn't belong to one team in particular. And in fact, it's not about playing for a particular team as much as it is playing together in a team. The cast of characters in this children's book are as diverse as can be imagined in terms of identity, and the anxiety is actually about whether or not one can play rather than wearing the wrong jersey. In fact, they all wear the same jersey, which inspires the team spirit. Above all else, this book is about how anyone can play hockey. Its commitment to breaking past assumptions or barriers related to gender or race in terms of its players and even its coaches. 
The book, as I say, was commissioned and supported by Scotiabank, and its mission was to re-envision a story about hockey that would ultimately change the face of hockey. And it therefore alluded to the largely famous book by Roque Curie called The Hockey Sweater, with a nod to the hockey player Maurice Richard. Listeners, if you don't know about this book, don't worry. I have two other scholars involved in today's episode, and they'll explain that particular book and its importance to Quebec and to Canada. So my first question to Richardson was, why do this book? What was her motivation? Here's what she had to say. So the inspiration for this book kind of has two sides to it. On one hand, there was Scotiabank who approached me and had this idea for kind of reimagining this book and giving it a new spin from the hockey sweater and specifically with the mission to change the face of hockey. That was kind of the central goal. And then for me as a writer, I had to take that away and kind of think, well, what's my inspiration inside of that mission? What's my real kind of goal in how we do that. And one of the things that was really important for me was to tell a story that was all encompassing of the game of hockey in a way that was universal across the game of hockey. And then to interweave this idea of changing the face of hockey into the story and especially into the illustrations. To create the hockey jersey, um, I actually took quite a different approach than I've taken with other books. And part of that was the way Scotiabank um, needed to work on the project. The project needed to come out a lot faster than typical. So typically, a children's book takes about two years, sometimes a little bit more to come out. And how it would work is that for a year, the author writes the story and creates the story text. And with an editor, you figure out kind of the layout, which page all the text is going to go on and how it's going to fit the total number of pages in the book. And then it goes to the illustrator and the illustrator has this framework or skeleton and they start doing the illustrations to support it. But because of the speed in which this book had to be done and because the illustrations were so critical to the overall story and the mission of the project, we actually worked together from the very beginning. So even when I pitched Chelsea to be involved in the project, I actually showed her the initial draft of the story, which of course wasn't what is actually out there now. There was a lot of tweaking and fixing that had to go into it. But Chelsea was involved from the very beginning. And so she was thinking up ideas and sort of, what do you think about Karima looking like this? And what do you think about some of the other players looking like this? So there was a bit of a back and forth about what the team would look like and a lot of conversation about that. And so that was really a unique part of this project that I actually enjoyed. I really loved as an author who works with another illustrator on picture books, I loved the idea that we could kind of go back and forth and share ideas as opposed to kind of working in isolation. And then I asked her, how challenging was it to alter or shift the representation of the characters from the hockey sweater? The great thing I will say in this project is there were a lot of people from Scotiabank side uh, in, involved from all different backgrounds and communities. So I felt very comfortable whenever we were having conversations, being very honest. And I think they ended up feeling very comfortable being honest as well. So I always give this, this there was an example early on about whether any of the main characters should be boys. Um, and I pushed back really hard on that. I said, you know, non-binary or girls, but 
not boys for this particular project. I said, if we're changing the face of hockey, I think we've had plenty of hockey books with boys in them. And I think there was a question about like, what happens if you're not represented in a book? Like, will boys feel connected to the story? And I'm like, girls have felt connected to boys stories our whole lives. But like, boys can learn if they don't feel represented, they can learn what it's not like to not be represented. And that's an important skill to develop as well. So there was conversations like that that happened. And the ones I'm thinking of, there were other ones where, yeah, some politics came into play in some of the conversations with how the the players were represented. And we had to be really open with each other about what our concerns were in that, what our sort of mission was. There's a character with Vitilago that we really felt was very important to, to Chelsea and I to represent. And I think when the idea of it came out, when we were just listing things, it was like, oh, what does that mean? What would that look like? You know, but when Chelsea did the illustrations, it was like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, of course, you know, no big deal. So it's like those kinds of things where you have to kind of give and take. Like I said, a project like this is about changing the face of hockey. It's about diverse voices. It's about underrepresented voices. And you can't do all of that in one book. You can't fix all of the problems in one book. But I had to kind of pick the ones that I thought were most important for me to stand on. And that's, I'm really happy with the way it came out. I'm happy with the process we went through for the way it came out. So I'm happy with any of the arguments and conversations and discussions, because I feel like that's what this is too. It's not just what the final product is. It's about people at Scotiabank who work on these projects all the time, understanding where they need to go, where there's still room to push and um, expand. Well, that need to push and expand her very contribution to this subject had me curious about hockey and literature in Canada. So I sought out two other settler scholars in literary circles in Canada to get more information. One of these was Dr. Jamie Dopp, an associate professor of Canadian literature at the University of Victoria. He's authored many articles and reviews, two novels, three collections of poetry, and he's co-edited collections of essays on sport and literature. His book, Hockey on the Moon, Imagination and Canada's Game, is forthcoming with Athabasca University Press. He seemed like an apt person, therefore, to ask about this subject. I specifically asked him about the hockey sweater. I observed that it's perhaps the most famous of these works about hockey and literature in Canada and probed him to elaborate on its place in that literary history. Here was his response. It's one of the most famous works of literature ever published in Canada. Millions you know, sold. It was a CBC film, uh, and it was on the $5 bill for years. It was taken to space by an astronaut and read aloud. So really, really famous text, but I think widely misread. Part of what people responded to is the childlike simplicity of it and a sort of nostalgic appeal to a more innocent time. And a lot of a lot of representations of hockey that are popular are like that. But actually, uh, in context, it's a, it's a darker story than people think uh, because it, it hints at the stresses below the surface in the, in the culture of Quebec, the English-French conflict. You know, in the story, the sweaters represent national aspirations, English versus French. But also, I'm really struck by the role of the priest so the priest at the end is the referee of the hockey game, and he's really mean to poor little Rosh for wearing the wrong sweater. And on one hand, it looks like the priest is sort of policing the purity of French culture, but it's really about the power of the church. 
and if you think about that story realistically, how does how does how does a priest first of all how does a priest end up refereeing a pickup hockey game between a bunch of nine year old boys? But second of all, you know the priest is really mean to poor Rosh, and he can get away with it because they have absolute power. And in the larger book that story comes from, which is called Les Enfants de la Bonhomme de la Moon, the the Children of the Man and the Moon, the book is filled with how stifling and ubiquitous the church was. So when you when you read that story in context, it's it's uh, not so easily read as simply a nostalgic story, though it is a nostalgic story too. And in the afterward to the second edition, this is only in French though, uh, but in the afterward to the second edition, Carrier talks about the significance of the man and the moon to him as a child, and it becomes an image for how he was of the generation that could still literally believe in such myths because they didn't really understand uh, the nature of the moon. Nobody traveled to the moon yet. And he sort of says, you know, my daughters laugh at me with these ideas because now they're raised in a more scientific age. And you sort of gain and lose um, by losing these, these, you know, misconceptions that the moon is made of cheese or whatever. So I love that happy connection that in a way Carrier connects hockey, the moon and imagination through his title. It's such an interesting story. The original title of the hockey sweater was not Le Shandai Daki. It was translated the the abominable maple leaf on the ice. Brilliant translator, Sheila Fishman. I think it was Fishman. I'm guessing because as having such an overtly argumentative title, it's almost like saying damn Yankees, right? It's like the damn maple leaf on the ice. Having that as a title, that would be not so appealing to English audiences, would it? So they changed it. It became this universal mythic title, the hockey sweater. And they changed the collection's title as well. As I said, the original collection was not called the hockey sweater. It was a great marketing thing um, on her part. It turns out that another scholar, Dr. Sam McKegney, teaches Racquerre's book in one of his undergraduate courses offered at Queen's University. Dr. McKegney is invested in the ways that Indigenous literary artists interrogate ongoing settler colonialism. Stick around for the takeaway. You'll hear a little bit more about that in that section. He's the author of two monographs that are concerned with Indigenous literary art, and he's edited a collection of interviews on the subject of Indigenous masculinities. And I can vouch for these. I've read these books. They're fantastic. He's also an integral part of the Indigenous Hockey Research Network, which includes those like Métis scholar Robert Hendry and Fisher River Cree scholar Janice Forsyth. So I couldn't resist asking him during my interview, why did he teach this book by Racquerrière? And what did he think of the place and importance of the hockey sweater and the role of Maurice Richard in it? It comes up over and over in discussions of what is the quintessentially Canadian story. Oftentimes, the hockey sweater rises right to the top of those those discussions. It's also something that many of the students have encountered before. And it allows us to bring forth a, a number of the threads that are going to be integral throughout the, the course as a whole. You know, it, it makes us think about linguistic communities, the notion of nostalgia and the connection between hockey in its most, like in the imagined most authentic form being out on the frozen pond in this mythic space of our childhoods. It really foregrounds economics and uh, 
questions of gender and authority and the English-French divide in relation to Canadian history. So it plays on all of those and therefore introduces them to the students. But perhaps most significantly, what, uh, what Carrière is able to do is make it seem as though the naturalization of hockey as at the core of cultural value in this Canadian or Francophone Canadian space, at the same time showing all of the flaws or cracks in it. So it's told as this nostalgic narrative that brings us back to a true time or a true space. Uh, but at the same time, we see the fractures within the family. We see how economics is, is playing out in conditioning certain forms of conformity while denying others. We also see in the illustrations, for instance, that accompany the text, the forms of exclusion that already exist in this space that's supposed to be bringing us together. So we see the, the female children who aren't invited onto the pond to play aside. And so I think that kind of pageantry, that kind of dramatization of both the nostalgic myth of Canadian hockey, but then also its underbelly, and all the while, while having this kind of quirky, funny story, I think really does significant work. And that's probably why we, we start from it. The question of the place of Richard in all of that, right? Um, I, I think partially because of the, the generational issue. I mean, I was, I'm old enough to have had that history of, of Richard and the riots and all of that filter back to me or, or in a way have, have it shadow my experience of the game. The students today don't necessarily have that unless they're really connected to the Habs, like the Montreal Canadiens. But if not, then it's, it's hard for them to actually even register that, that that could be a thing, that there would be a riot. It's, in a sense, illustrative of the question of who holds power in Canadian spaces. And so when Richard was suspended in a playoff moment, when he's the greatest player in the world, and he's denied the opportunity to play by an administrative body that is perceived as having Anglophone allegiances, it struck such a chord that the fans in Montreal and Quebec more broadly were, were outraged and violence ensued. And I'm not doing it justice. I'm not a historian of this moment, but it's a remarkable time. And it, it tells something about the passion that people can have for a game and also the, the sense of affiliation that people can have. Part of why we would turn to Richard is he played in a certain way. He was notable by his brilliance on the ice. And also that he was able to match that sense of artistry with a ferocity. Right? There was a, there was a, a dangerousness about, and the, you know, his famed eyes that could hold a stare. All of that feeds into what becomes larger than life. It's this, this epic in, individual, this epic talent. I wanted to know more about the history of hockey and literature. So I asked Dr. Dopp about the origins of representation of hockey in settler literary history. One of the surprising things about the origins is that there's so little literature about hockey from the early part of Canada's history. 
So there's a few little snippets in the early days, Glengarry School Days by Ralph Connor, early 20th century novel, has a early hockey game that takes up about a third of the novel. There's a few other famous books with snippets, like Two Solitudes has uh, just four episodes about hockey in it, but mostly there weren't. And that was part of my fascination. The scholarly point of view on that was that there was a certain amount of snobbery in the sort of literary world towards hockey as a subject. And it was sort of left as a popular culture kind of activity. So after that, there were some juvenile novels, most famously Scott Young's Scrubs on Skates trilogy, which is from the 1950s and early 60s. And then a few just kind of beginning texts like Al Purdy's poem, Hockey Players, uh, or Roche Carrier's uh, The Hockey Sweater, which, which was published, you know, not long after Levesque came into power in 1976. So it's kind of a strangely nostalgic look back at an earlier version of Quebec culture. And then Roy McGregor did a novel in the 1980s called The Last Season. But that that was basically it. From the beginning, even the, the snippets of hockey and literature, the reason that they were there is that they were reflecting meanings that were being projected onto the game in the country at the time. So in the early versions, back to Glengarry School days, Connor is attaching muscular Christian values to the game. In uh, Two Solitudes, the different versions of hockey in Two Solitudes represent the political conflicts within the country. The English game versus the French game, the professional game, which represents a certain kind of modern mercantile country, versus the amateur game, which represents a sort of aristocratic ideal or something. So it's always been political. What has happened in the evolution is that the hockey literature, there's now a more popular strand of the literature that's still pretty celebratory, uh, as Scrubs on Skates is from the 50s. But the literature that I'm most interested in uh, has a more complex attitude, where people, they're like myself, you know, they grew up loving the game and maybe playing. And so they have a certain nostalgic attachment to a view of the game, but at the same time, as writers, you're skeptical about all that messaging that's attached to the game. This was absolutely fascinating for me, but even more so when I realized how much Dr. McKegney brought a unique perspective to this body of work. Though he admits to not being a specialist on hockey and literature, he brings to bear his expertise on settler colonialism and Indigenous communities, and how hockey is featured in this dynamic. In many Indigenous communities, hockey is the main attraction. It's extremely important to a lot of folks, and they love to play it, and they love to cheer for local teams and for their, their favorite professional teams, etc. But hockey has been intimately involved in the building of this national mythology in Canada that erases indigeneity. And so those two things don't erase each other. The fact that hockey was used in residential schools as part of the disciplining apparatus to encourage Indigenous youth no longer to identify with their cultures. That doesn't take away the fact that for many, the experience of the sport in those spaces was also a, a sense of possible freedom or, or a liberatory experience or something that helped them to endure. So those ambivalences are, are very much kind of connected to how hockey has functioned 
in a lot of Indigenous lives. And so in those conversations over many years, it seemed to a number of us to be worthwhile uh, to perhaps devote some of our resources and, and skills as academic researchers to maybe try to answer some questions and, uh, and maybe try to work toward making hockey experiences for Indigenous players more pleasant, more, more welcoming, etc. I invited him to elaborate here. I realized that Dr. McKegney's research became more deeply involved in hockey scholarship, but specifically in the Indigenous Hockey Research Network. There's a link in my show notes about this network. He's involved with several project members. So I asked him, could he elaborate on the nature of that project? And why did he feel the need to undertake this work? So five or six years ago, a few of us got together and we put in a shirt grant, which I think we called Decolonizing Sport, Indigeneity, Hockey, and Canadian Nationalism. And uh, we, we pitched kind of a imaginary infrastructure for what we might seek to do. But the idea was always that if we're successful, we'll bring together the people who need to be around the table, including some of the Indigenous researchers, but also others, like working at a community level who have actually been doing this work on the ground for decades, and then try to, with those voices around the table, determine what are the questions of value, what will we prioritize over the next few years, what are, who are the community partners that need to be making decisions about what research is done, et cetera. And then that's how the Indigenous Hockey Research Network formed, was really out of those, uh, those conversations. So, you know, I'm really fortunate and grateful to work with brilliant people like the Cree sport historian, Janice Forsyth, Métis scholar, Robert Henry, uh, Salto scholar, Shane Keepness, and to have members of our advisory council like uh, Eugene Arcand and Mel Whitesell and Marion Jacko, who's now on the board of directors for Hockey Canada. Just really, really brilliant people. In the end, I realized that this is also at some level what J.L. Richardson was trying to undertake. That is, there's a political dimension to how hockey was being positioned and represented, to who was being included and excluded, as she herself discussed in the interview. So one of the things that's really important about the story is about thinking about representation, about who's represented and who isn't. And it's a really tricky question to get into, because even in this current iteration of the book, not everybody is represented. It's actually impossible. But I think there's two kinds of ways to think about representation and about the work it does. A lot of teachers talk about windows and mirrors and sliding glass doors, and it's kind of around that philosophy. There's the importance for me in creating books where people who haven't typically seen themselves represented see themselves represented. And that's kind of the mirror, right? Reflecting back who you are so that you can say, hey, I'm included, I'm here, I belong. And then there's also the experience of not seeing yourself represented and about recognizing what that feels like, what that looks like, and that that happens to a lot of people all day, every day. For years, I grew up reading books, never seeing a Black character, especially a Black lead. And that kind of absence made me feel like I was strange, like I didn't belong, like I wasn't meant to be there. 
And I think it's really important to reflect on like who's missing and that question of who's missing in literature, who's been missing in literature, who's represented and underrepresented, who's misrepresented. And that was a really important question for me to explore and unpack. And even in picking the final cast of characters and the communities that are specifically represented, we had to ask ourselves that question, who's still missing? What do we do about that long term? And how can we think about that? And so this is like the beginning of a longer conversation conversation and a longer discussion that, again, I just hope pushes us a little bit further down the road than we've been. In the course of the conversation, as all three speakers indicated, hockey is both personal and communal, even as it's politicized, as much in its literary manifestations as it is in real life. I asked Richardson about how personal this was for her, and her response, which fascinatingly includes an assessment of the change rooms in sports arenas, resonated with some of Dr. McKegney's responses in the course of our interview, although I don't include his responses in today's episode. Here's what she had to say. Well, I think in terms of what I've learned about hockey, it's interesting because my experience in hockey was that my brother played it growing up, and we were sort of, uh, for a very short time, like in the rinks doing that thing, and eventually my brother said, I can't do this anymore. And I think he chose football over hockey or that's what he says, but I know there was a lot of like racism that he faced um, in the sport that he really struggled with. They still struggles to talk about today. To be honest, we were talking about the book and, and he said for about 10 years after leaving the sport, he couldn't even watch hockey. um, Couldn't like navigate the sport in any way. And eventually put his ice, put his skates back on, went back on the ice, did those kinds of things. But it was hard for him but I have just the fondest of memories in ice rinks. Like for me, it's also going skating and going in those really weirdly smelling change rooms and, you know, putting, putting on your skates and going on the ice and coming out kind of smelling a strange way too. I just have really fond memories of those experiences. And one of the things that's happening in my neighborhood is that a number of the kids are playing hockey. And so there's all these conversations. There's, there's pond hockey, there's backyard hockey that's happening in my community and talking to the kids about it has been really interesting, and especially the young girls on my street that are playing hockey. And there's this family element of, of hockey that I just, I thought was so important that I ended up making it into the story. But it it's so unique. Uh, this is one of the things that I really wanted to capture in the book, the way the change room functions as this sort of place for family um, and building family. This book, The Hockey Jersey, actually starts with these young girls, these young players going into this change room for the first time without parents. And of course, it's not emphasized at the start of the story, but that's the premise is is that it's this first year where the parents aren't in the change room and these players are getting ready themselves and they're kind of nervous and they're kind of anxious. And then they get these jerseys and it kind of changes everything. And that is a premise that I think hockey teams go through many times over, over the course of a community hockey career and um, and even beyond that. And so I just loved that moment. And I really wanted to highlight what I think is so special. And then putting on the jerseys and going out and seeing all these fans wearing your team jerseys and your team clothes and cheering for you. Community sport is such an important place for building community. And in hockey, I think there's just these really added special elements that you don't get with all other sports. You know, my son plays basketball basketball there's no change room readiness that happens from the time they're little 
typically for years you just show up and you wait at the side of the court and then when your game starts you go on to the court and you play right so there's not this gathering this closing together he's now at the upper years where his coach kind of forces them to do that now but it wasn't always the case and it does change things and I think it's great that for hockey it's built in from the very beginning Eva Perone who helped with the book talked about she would forget her glove and someone would say oh I have an extra glove in my car and they would go get it and you know they'd go to tournaments and you'd send your kid with some other family and you've only met them like a week ago you know there's this this really organic kind of family experience I think with hockey and when it comes to changing the face of hockey I thought it was really important to center in on what makes the sport special I think do I want to be on the ice or in the rink all the time? Maybe not. But if I know that doing that means I build this relationship with other parents and family members and create a family for my kid, yeah, I'm all in. And so it's about sort of highlighting what I think is so great about Canada's sport and making sure people know that so that they can participate. So reading the hockey jersey and having these conversations renewed my interest in hockey, in cheering for the sport and for applauding how the face of hockey and its representation in literature is indeed changing. This is the takeaway portion of the podcast. I had such wonderful conversations with these three writers and scholars, and they took such rich and absorbing directions. I deeply regret that I could only share a small portion of what they had to say. Still, for the takeaway today... I'm adding Dops and McKegney's voices about other forms of hockey and literature. Here, for example, are some of Dops' recommendations. Paul Corrington did a novel called King Leary in the late 1980s. That's a, that's a sort of lampoon about the myth of hockey, about, you know, the, the poor little immigrant boy who skates on the back rink and then, you know, turns out to be the best player of all time. And then he turns out, you know, in... It's a rags to riches to rags story. So he turns out to be not a very nice person. And um, But there, it's filled with in-jokes about hockey history. It's a very funny book. Uh, and then from that point on, a series of, um, I think, really good, like literarily good novels uh, came out. Um, I think The Good Body by Gil Gas- Bill Gaston. The Good Body by Bill Gaston is uh, just a really fine novel and uh, treats hockey as a, as a really serious subject, but it's also kind of funny and thoughtful and filled with all the Buddhist stuff that's in Gaston. Um, there's some poetry. So it wasn't a lot of poetry, but now there, there are actually a number of full collections of poems about hockey, most famously Richard Harrison's Hero of the Play, which came out uh, in the early 90s as well, and is... Uh, you'd have to double check, but I think it's the best-selling book of poems that uh, Wolsack and Wynn has ever published. And uh, and then another great uh, collection that's all poetry is Randall Maggs's Nightwork. It's a documentary poem in a sense. It really is in the documentary poem mode. So it takes the story of Terry Sawchuk and looks at it through all these different points of view and lenses. There's a lot of Faustian myths related to sport. Um, characters who made deals with the devil in order to get success and then have uh, to deal with it. Damn Yankees. I mentioned Damn Yankees, right? That's a Faustian story. Character just needs to beat the Yankees so much. He's willing to sell his soul to the devil. Uh, Anyway, but what do we do with these characters? Just like 
characters in the rest of life who seem to have otherworldly success, but have in some ways achieved it by making such terrible moral compromises and uh, or personal compromises. So what do you do with a character like that? You know, it raises all these questions about the price of success and and why we we want to turn these these men, usually typically they're men, into these heroic figures with all the, the rough edges smoothed away. I also really enjoyed Sam McKegney's take on the novel Indian Horse by Anishinaabe writer Richard Wagamese. I actually have read this book and, in fact, have taught it several times in my courses. There's a movie also that's been made about it, and heads up, I'll be talking about adapting books to film in the next episode of Getting Lit with Linda. But for the moment, here's Sam McKegney's view on this particular book. Indian Horse is beautiful and crushing and gripping. It's a page-turner, uh, but it's really complicated, and it's, it's doing important work. In the world. What I, I think is so crucial to how Wagamese is using sport in that text is that he's encouraging particularly settler readers to perhaps see themselves differently implicated in the colonial project than many works really encourage us to do. And so I think, for instance, the majority of what I would call residential school survival narratives or Novels that are have a major residential school component that are told from a first-person perspective of an Indigenous protagonist. For the settler reader who turns to those works, oftentimes we would see ourselves most reflected in the experiences of the protagonist whose eyes we're seeing the tale through. And so we will, we will feel horrified and shocked and saddened and crushed and angry, but we'll, we'll do so while constantly being able to turn back to a sense of our own, our own empathy, right? That, that we, we care by virtue of seeing in this fashion and not seeing ourselves in any way implicated in the actual violent infrastructure of the residential school itself. Alternatively, I would argue that with Indian Horse, while we may indeed see ourselves reflected in Saul's experience, Wagamese, I think, tactically encourages us to, to actually connect with Father Le Boutelier, who is the priest figure who introduces Saul to the game of hockey and who actually seems to, to care in what we imagine to be a sincere way about Saul. And and Saul is so solitary and lonely and disconnected that we're grateful as readers for this relationship and the, the sense that Saul can find solace and self-worth in the game of hockey. And Father Le Boutelier is really on the side there making that possible. And I think what, what Wagamese is doing in that is having a settler reader say, you know what? If I were in a residential school, that horrible, horrible place that I condemn, I would be one of the good ones. You know, I would be that overseer who actually cares about the kids. I would be the one that, that brings life and joy into this space that is otherwise traumatic and, and, otherwise, er, and crushing. 
And then when we get to the turn at the end of the novel, when we recognize just who Father Le Boutelier has been all along, it's, it's tearing away the mask and forcing the settler reader to look at him or herself in a, in a really profound way. And I think it implicates us in the settler colonial project differently. And so I would argue that Wagamese leverages sport to do that for a really wide audience that might not otherwise enter into deep thinking about residential school and its relationship to contemporary Canada. And that's it for today's episode of Getting Lit with Linda. Please join us for the next episode when I bring in a special guest to help me talk about Canadian novels and their adaptation to the screen. As always, thanks for listening, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.